In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit SIFT.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So we'll start off as we always do. Tell us who you are, where you're from, who you represent. And then we'll jump right in. Sure thing. My name is Eric Crone. I currently live in the Tampa Bay area, and I work with Nobefore, which is an organization that does security awareness training and a simulated phishing platform. And I was telling you before we jumped on the podcast here, I think you are the only person we've had on the program, with all due respect to all of our other guests, that has a sexier radio voice than I do. So... Congratulations on that. I'm going to send you, you I'm going to send you one of our care packages. It has some hot chocolate in it and some really good stuff as a as a, a victory prize for you. So, oh, so, so, so Eric, um, really appreciate you being on the program here. And the reason you are here is because there is an extremely interesting, for lack of a better word, uh, attack that just recently happened about two weeks ago um, when we're recording this. And I'll let you fill us in on what that was. And then we'll talk about all the implications that it has for the industry and moving forward. Yeah, the unfortunate thing is we see these kinds of attacks all the time. But this one in particular was an attack against North Face, the uh, the outdoor uh, clothing and such manufacturer and it's what's called a credential stuffing attack and this is actually very simple in its in how it works imagine this these attackers these bad actors they collect a bunch of credentials that's your username and login uh, from different data breaches for example every time we see one of these breaches out there we go oh, okay well, they only got this data. Well, a lot of times they get the username and password there and they make a list of this and then they turn around and they try it in other places, whether it's banking, whether it's major retailers, for example, with North Face. Uh, we see it a lot where they're attacking them, uh, trying these logins at Amazon and those sorts of things. Well, in this case, they managed to get like 194,000 accounts using credential stuffing, which is pretty eye-opening. And what that tells me is, for the most part, this is because people reuse passwords across different web services and websites. Yeah, this was really eye-opening when it came across my desk, both because of the scope of the attack, but also because it's North Face, which is obviously an extremely reputable company. So I want to dive into kind of both of these aspects one at a time. Let's let's start with 
the company. Actually, let's start with the scale and then we will move into kind of how it could have been prevented. Companies that are dealing with a lot of consumer data, a lot of consumer information. And as you just said, consumers will say to be generous can't always be trusted. Um, it's probably the nice way to put it to protect their information. I personally use a password manager. I encourage everyone out there to do it. I know they're not foolproof, but it's certainly better than using password one, two, three, or reusing the same password across all of your websites. Um, how should companies be thinking about these types of attacks and putting prevention measures in place, knowing the reality of how consumers reuse passwords, don't follow the, the established best practices for securing their accounts? Yeah, you know, you touched on it there a little bit. And essentially, these retailers, they kind of have to protect consumers from themselves. And there's reasons that people reuse passwords. I mean, as security professionals, we want what a, a 12 character password with uppercase, lowercase, special characters, by the way, don't ever reuse it and don't write it down anywhere, which is why like you, I'm a big fan of password managers. But either way, it results in an issue where the retailers or the, the organization has to defend the the customers basically because of their own bad behaviors and practices. And one of the key ways that they can do this, uh, because it, they are somewhat limited when somebody has a valid username and password. But what you're going to look for is you're going to look for a massive set of attacks where a lot of places are trying to log in from generally one or two different um, IP addresses on the internet you're going to see that going on uh, at a pretty massive scale. And if that's happening, you're going to see a lot of failed logins as well. So they got 194,000 accounts here, but I can probably guarantee that, that that's probably what maybe 10 or 15% of the ones that they tried. So there would have been a big push to do this. Now it becomes more difficult if the attacker is wise enough to break this out over days or weeks they get into the account they don't do anything with it uh, and they slowly keep trying these uh these login credentials on there and that'll make it look more like typical traffic but ultimately most of the time these are done in a pretty quick sweep where they're trying these credential pairs uh very quickly and in large volumes so retailers organizations they need to be aware of this and they need to be flagging this in an automated fashion so their security teams can take a look at this kind of activity. Yeah, and that's that's where I want to go with this. Why does something like this happen? Now, I know this is maybe a little bit touchy um, because we know everybody is working hard doing their best. But North Face is a big company, and I don't know anyone personally from their fraud team, but I'm sure that they have a, a fairly robust fraud team. And this, to, to me, seems like an attack, unlike some of the more sophisticated type of like mage cart, maybe things that are going on. This seems kind of like table stakes to me. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but how does something like this slip through the defenses 
Yeah, in all fairness to them, there's a lot of noise out there anytime you have a website. So even my own little blog website, um, a week or two ago, I got a whole bunch of notifications of attempted logins. And it was over and over and over again from different places. Uh, most of them were IPv6 addresses, uh, but it was just constant. I kept getting these alerts. Now, I, this is just a little blog thing that I have up just for fun. You can imagine the scale of this kind of noise that's generated in these larger organizations like North Face. So you have these ones that they have a good set of credentials to try with the credential stuffing. But other times, pretty constantly, anything connected to the internet is going to be hit with a barrage of just brute force ones where they're guessing. So there's another attack called password spraying which is similar where they'll take like a known email address and they'll try all of those basic passwords that we see released every year. The things like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or Q W E R T Y, you know, the, the keyboard patterns. And they basically take that username and they combine it with those other passwords. Well, when you have that going on, there's a lot of noise there and that's just happening constantly on things on the internet. You have legitimate customers that, hey, they may have forgotten their passwords. We see this all the time. They're trying to log in and it's failing. It's happened to all of us. This is happening on a large scale with a large organization. So you end up with all this noise. And sometimes it's very hard to differentiate what's a real threat from what's simply an anomaly or a little bit of a surge maybe caused by a marketing campaign or something where people are suddenly coming there in higher volumes than you normally would. So this is a huge challenge for organizations. And unfortunately, it can take a lot of uh, manpower or, or people power to be looking at these logs and trying to determine if this is actually a threat. So what are some of the best practices that you would give to fraud teams that are listening right now to give themselves the best chance of cutting through that noise and, and catching these signals? Well, you're going to almost have to establish what's normal for your organization because what's normal for one website is not normal for another one. And that means tracking it for a little while, building basically a, a behavioral analytics on what's going on with your website. And that way you can more quickly spot the anomalies. You wanna to try to automate that wherever possible. Uh, and you wanna look at account logins and lockouts. One of my favorite things to do is in cases like this, maybe set it up so that after four or five bad passwords, you're locking the account down. Now, the flip side of this is it's very inconvenient for the customers and you may end up driving people away from your website. So this comes down to organizations uh, risk appetite and what they're willing to accept uh, in exchange for security. So if an account has five, let's say five password attempts uh, very quickly and the account locks out, um, you have to make it fairly easy for the individuals to reset the account so that they can get in. Um, but ultimately, what you want to try to do is figure out what is normal and then focus on looking at the anomalies to what's normal. Do you have any 
I want to dig a little deeper here because I, I think that's a great point, great advice. How do people go about establishing what is normal when there is constant noise going on? How, how are you able to set that benchmark? Are you looking at averages? Are you taking a, a specific period of time? Because obviously what's normal for you in December is probably not what's normal for you in February. So how are you going about making those determinations? Well, it's absolutely going to take time to do that. Because like you said, these things are cyclical at times during, you know, based on seasons and, and other things. Again, you can run a marketing campaign that's hugely successful and all of a sudden a bunch of people are coming there. But essentially the first start is, the first step is you need to collect the data somewhere. You need to collect it in some way, shape, or form that you can then build things from. Now, I'm a big fan of AI in situations such as this. Now, I'm not an AI expert. I don't even play one on TV, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express <laughs> last night, okay? Uh, so I can't give you any you know, details on exactly how to do this. But what I have seen is that AI-based approaches to this are good because AI never has to look away from the screen. It is really good at spotting trends and patterns in massive amounts of data and then being able to extrapolate those uh, those abnormal uh, behaviors within that as well. It's one of the few places that I really do like uh, AI in security tools. I think it's too much of a buzzword in a lot of other places, right? Um, but using looking for tools that help you do that would be my recommendation. Let's start talking to vendors. How do you do this? How can you normalize this data so that we can see what's typical? I would even go so far as to reach out to your your SIM, uh, whoever runs your SIM or creates your SIM. Uh, you know the the security uh, um, events and, and incident management consoles that you have out there, or your firewalls, and ask them. How do I do this? How do I parse this more easily? Because that's some of the key things in some of the tools, especially in like a network or security operations center. That's some of the key things that those tools are supposed to be able to do. I find that people a lot of times don't take the time and effort to actually tune those devices or to spend the effort into taking advantage of all the things those devices offer. Instead, we get so busy just deploying it. Okay. It's up and working. I'm happy. Okay. I have these 12 other things I need to go do. And a lot of things end up to some degree or another shelfware out there. So talk to your vendors, uh, talk to your suppliers, see if they have things that will help you uh, in these areas. So moving forward, you spoke about in the, um, discussion that you had already about this, about two-factor authentication. So I want to dive down this rabbit hole. We haven't talked about <laughs> it yet on the podcast, um, so it's long overdue as we get close to episode 30 here of the podcast to go over this. So I think everybody kind of knows what 2FA is, but let, let's start at the beginning so to speak take me through kind of what some of the the current thinking about best practices for 2FAR and since we're we are a retailer 
um, facing publication, um, how businesses can encourage this use with consumers? Should they be prompting them? Should they be forcing them? Should they be annoying them? All of the above <laughs> in, in what measure of each one? Just take me through that um, as much as, as you can. Yeah, well, the good news is with respect to 2FA, a lot of work has already been done by the banks and financial institutions. It's hard these days to get a banking account that you sign up for where you just use your username and password and it doesn't end up sending you a code through a text message. That's just kind of the default these days. And, and at least in the last couple of bank accounts that we've opened up, it hasn't been an option to not do that. Now, that helps smooth us into other things. And I want to be clear here. Multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication is not the silver bullet. It doesn't, it's not the end-all be-all, and it's not a crutch for not using strong password hygiene. It's simply an extra layer to help. However, these attackers have gotten pretty clever about bypassing MFA. And the text message side of MFA is pretty, it's, it's not very secure, quite frankly. Uh, there's lots of attacks against that. A lot of people in the cryptocurrency trading realm have found that out. They thought they were secure because of multi-factor. Can you give um, us an example? Uh, well, there's just been, there's been a lot of people ripped off having their accounts taken over at a lot of these, uh, uh, these crypto exchanges because they get sloppy with the passwords. And then what happens is most of these attacks against MFA that I've personally seen have been around the, uh, they've been a human attack. In other words, they get somebody to give up that code. So, hey, this is, you know, this is your bank, for example. We're testing some new security features. We're about to send you a code. Please let us know what that code is just to ensure that things are safe. Well, what they're doing on the backside is they have your username and password. They type it into their computer. It sends you the code, the SMS code from your bank. And you say, okay, the code is, you know, one, two, three, four, five, whatever. And then they log in using that code and they've just suckered you out of giving up your code. That's a really common thing with multi-factor authentication. They social engineer people out of that with the text messages. Another tricky way that they're doing it these days that, uh, that frankly, I, I think is very interesting. There's an attack out there where they will essentially send somebody a link. They click on this and it opens it up in a VNC viewer that it basically opens a browser within your browser. The thing is the, the browser is running on the attacker's computer that is open within yours. So in other words, you don't even really see it. You see a login page for a bank or whatever it is they're trying to get you to log into. And it looks legitimate. You type in your username and password. It sends you the code or you take the code off your phone and you, you look at that, you type it into the password. But what you're really doing, because they're very slick about this, is you're actually typing it into a screen on a computer they control. So you've now logged them in. On top of that, they can take your session cookies. And as long as that session is alive, a lot of places 
will say, okay, you've already used multi-factor authentication to log in. I'm not going to ask you to do it again. There was just an attack against Microsoft exactly like this. So you've put in your username and password, which they've captured, and they've essentially shut off MFA for the time being, as long as that session token or session cookie is good. So there's lots of sneaky ways that they're getting around MFA. Now, that doesn't mean I don't highly recommend it. The key thing I want people to understand is that multi-factor authentication is not the silver bullet. And we need to make sure that people don't get sloppy with their other hygiene just because they have multi-factor enabled. So take me through some of the best practices for this as a business. What should you be encouraging your consumers to do on the 2FA part? I totally understand the, yeah. the best practices. Tell them don't use 12345678 as your password. But when you're getting right. into the mechanism for 2FA, what should merchants be telling their consumers to do? So I would love to see merchants moving away from the text message side of things. Uh, we have the Google authenticators. We have those applications on our smartphones. And frankly, we have our smartphones anyways that we're going to receive the text message on. So we've, we've already got that trail blazed a little bit. I think what, what's important is to remind people never to give out that code to anyone else. So as, as the merchants are talking to people and they're saying, we, we would like you to enable multi-factor authentication. And I think there should be a big push for that. They also need to be saying, and by the way, we will never ask you for this code as well. And that needs to be in their policies as well, because if they, if they don't do that, then they stand, these consumers stand to be ripped off by the folks, the scammers that are saying, hey, this is Facebook, this is Amazon, whatever, we need to verify your code. We need to make sure that they know that that's not okay. So you think, if I'm hearing you correctly, the authenticator apps right now are currently the best way to deploy 2FA and not text messages um, are there are there other options that are out there for merchants that they can enable? Absolutely, and and for very high end accounts, or you know, if you're in finance and you have somebody that's that's in a a very high wealth type account, there's some hardware keys out there that I'm a really big fan of. Uh, I use what's called a UB key on a lot of different things. It's essentially a USB key you put into the computer, you've registered it with the website. And it produces an OTP, which is a one-time password, when you touch the little disk in the middle of it. It's a hardware token. And without that hardware token, nobody's logging into this account. Now, the problem with those is, let's say you're a charming, good-looking person with a radio voice who travels a lot, and they accidentally take a different set of keys with them while they travel out of town and need to get into one of those accounts it's just not happening at this so, point. Wait, are so you talking about you or me? Is this, are, <laughs> right. is this you? And <laughs> it could the, be either oh, of us. <laughs> okay. I'm just, just double checking. Just double checking. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. say it's you. <laughs> yeah. But that, see, that's the problem is you can end up uh, locking yourself out with those hardware keys. Yet we're far less likely to forget our phone and leave it behind on a road trip than we are our keys. 
Although, again, on those high vo- high value things, I'm a big fan of YubiKeys. Or uh, Google has the Titan key, which is very similar to it. Um, a lot of these work on the, the FIDO or FIDO2 technology, which is fantastic. Okay. So extremely friction and possibly losing yes. access to your account. So And costly. And co- oh, yeah, I, I didn't even think of that. I'm sure it's extremely costly to do something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So here's a little bit of a curveball question, just because I know that people mm-hmm. out there are going to be asking, and I know it's not your expertise, but while you're here, from the experiences that you've had, what is the best way to get consumers to take this seriously and to get consumers to implement something like this. So let's say I'm a merchant and I say, okay, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to force people that have certain accounts, types of accounts that have high value um, to use a Google authenticator or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how do you go about, doing that with your consumer base what what has been your experiences with the messaging that goes into that do you recommend forcing it on people do you not recommend that uh, if you don't recommend it or even i guess if you do what what do you say how do you broach the subject with people so like like getting people engaged in training and, and education which is again what what we know before focus on the same sort of mentality has to take place with with this. And we have to understand that we're essentially asking somebody to take an extra step to do something they've been doing for a long time in order to accomplish the same thing. And, and that's a tough sell. The thing is, if we can make it relevant to them, if we can help those people understand in the messaging why this is important to them, uh, we, we should avoid how this protects the organization from fraud we should focus on how it protects that individual who we're asking to do these extra things and if we can make it relevant to them if we can make it matter to them and make them understand how it helps them out that's going to make getting something like this in place a whole lot easier it becomes a significant problem when you ask somebody to do something and they don't understand the value in it why it matters to them and why they should really care about this. Again, make it relevant to them, make them understand how it's keeping them safer and that there is a real threat out there. And it's a lot easier to get people to adopt these new behaviors. That's not to say that everybody's going to do it and be happy about it, but it will help. So I have another angle on this, which is I know that I've had certain sites and things that I've done where it's been suggested that I use 2FA. (laughs) But I'm always always afraid that I'm going to get locked out of my account because it'll tell you you need the Google Authenticator app that's on your phone. And then I'm thinking, well, what happens if I lose my phone? And then how do I what am I going to do to get this account back? And I don't want to have to go through that. And even if, let's say, even if I was willing to go through it, let's take it out of the realm of, of friction and just say, I'm afraid that I'm just not going to be able to, that I'm going to call up whatever place and say, Hey, it's really me. 
I lost the authenticator and they're going to, if, if they're really a, a top-notch team, basically just not going to believe me. So what would you, yeah. what would you say to me about why I'm wrong uh, and, and how I should be approaching that type of an objection? Well, in a lot of these cases, in most of the cases where I've had to enable or I've enabled something like Authenticator, where it, it generates those numbers, it also actually generates several, sometimes as many as 10 or 20 one-time passwords that you can then print out and put in your safe. You keep them in a safe place. And at any time, you can use one of those passwords to log back into the account. If you lose your authenticator, if you lose your your method of doing that, those are there. And I know Facebook does it. Um, I, I know there's quite a few different ones where when you set up or you enable that multi-factor authentication, especially in the uh, the higher security side of things, it generates those usable codes. So people need to understand that. They need to understand what that means for them and how to secure those. I mean, one of the problems we have is, okay, great. I've generated these codes. I'm never going to need them. So they don't print them. They don't keep them or, or they put them in that, you know, that place that we all have in our homes that's safe where we keep it, but we can never find something <laughs> that ends up happening to those codes, unfortunately. Right. So we need to understand that, that how important those are, but generally speaking, most of the places I've seen when they do that, that's part of the multi-factor authentication piece is generating those codes. And what about saving those codes in a Dropbox or in a Google Drive or whatever? I would assume that that's not considered best practice because those places aren't really secure. Although I can also see if you just have a bunch of codes and, and you know where they're from, but somebody else doesn't maybe... You know, they're, they're not going to go yeah. try every single site that has two-factor authentication. So what are your thoughts on that? I'm not a big fan of doing something in Dropbox or Google Drive, um, mostly because we see we see attackers get into something and that's what they're looking through. They, they look through all that stuff. They know what they're looking for. What I would recommend is, and we go back to what you and I had mentioned before, password managers. And password managers oftentimes have notes fields that are encrypted it's secure. You could go in there and you could grab those from anywhere that you can log into your uh, your vault and you would have those codes available to you. So I would much rather see somebody put them in there if you're going to keep them in a digital format. Otherwise, what I do, I print them out, I put them in my safe. And if I'm on the road, I can call home and ask a trusted person, in my case, my wife, and say, hey, can you go pull those codes out? Um, I need to know where those are. But otherwise, if you're going to do it digitally, big fan of the password vaults for things like this. Okay, good to know. Um, so let's move more towards kind of the future. Obviously, we're talking about password managers now, but in the near future, we always say five years or less, we're going to have the AR glasses, possibly some kind of <laughs> VR technology. You're going to have cars that, you know, you can talk to like James Bond, who knows what. Um, where do you where do you kind of see the future of the, the password going, but more broadly 2FA and then maybe most broadly just how we can secure 
everything, which is really where it seems that we're going, where your house is going to be online, your car is going to be online, your bio data is going to be online. Um, you know, where are we going yeah. with this? Where where are you seeing this as an expert? What should people be at least starting to think about for the future? Well, interestingly enough, we do see people trying to ditch passwords already. And that's become very evident in things like your iPhone with the, the facial recognition or even the old, uh, you know, biometric um, fingerprint scanners and things on them. So we know that people are tired of passwords. Unfortunately, I think passwords are still going to be around for a while because there's significant flaws in most other things. I like biometrics for not for the authentication piece, but the identification piece. So biometrics are one that a lot of people say will replace passwords. However, I firmly believe that it's better used to replace, let's say, your username than your password. Because it's so easy to fake these days, um, there's been you know multiple attacks over biometrics. Plus, if somebody can get in and they can, they can get your medical um, information. I mean, I was part of the OPM breach, which had my fingerprints and you know all kinds of good stuff in it. That stuff's all breached already. Um, but passwords are going to be around for a while. I am a fan of things like FIDO. Uh, which can help like with the Yubi keys and the hardware keys, which can help do your identity through pieces of hardware like that. Um, but ultimately, I think what we're going to be leaning towards is for ease of use, we're going to be getting more and more into biometrics, which I am not a huge fan of, unfortunately. I think it's going to be there, though. Do you think it's just going to be fingerprints or are you thinking voice? Are you thinking retina scanning i don't know maybe right now the the macbook takes my fingerprint am i gonna have to like draw blood in there in 10 years like what like what where do you think spit on it i don't know something like where where are we where well there's the uh the my voice is my password authenticate me right yeah exactly Um, unfortunately you know the problem with those is and even some of the facial recognition or some of that sort of thing is we're seeing deep fakes out there and deep fakes can imitate voices as well as they can uh, videos as well. So that's where you use AI to generate a basically a fake version of a person and use that against it. And we've seen the the facial recognition on the the phones tricked by you know a 3d printed face Uh, there's only so many points that they're going to use on that um and you you there's a whole thing that we can get into on biometrics and in uh, false positives versus uh, false negatives and and where you want to draw that line but that's you'll, that, that you'll would be have a whole to episode. you'll have to come yeah. back i was gonna say <laughs> booked yeah that could We're be booked. a whole nother episode totally booked um so <laughs> Where where do you think, from a merchant perspective, we're talking about all this information now that we're collecting? And one of the things that I saw you mentioned was also about safeguarding the information that people mm-hmm. give you. Um, and so for merchants out there, you know, who are putting into FA and maybe right now doing some kind of biometrics, whatever it is, 
um, either on the username side or the password side. Um, what are, what are your recommendations for how to secure this? I know this is a little bit outside of your, your expertise, but in, in right. your experience and with people that you've worked with, what are some of the best practices that you've seen people doing to, to hold on to this type of sensitive data? Well, the key thing you want to do is know what data you've collected and how long you really need it for. And if you don't need it, get rid of it because then you don't have to protect it. And, and that's one of the things I see where organizations, especially ones that have gone online um, in some of the earlier days, they just gathered all the information they possibly could uh, on people and they never get rid of it. Because in the physical world, if you have boxes of information full of paper of customers that uh, you haven't seen in 10 or 15 years or something along those lines, you start feeling the crunch in storage problems in the digital world we just throw another couple hard drives in there and so there's a lot of data that floats out there that people don't even realize is out there uh, it gets stolen it gets lost the other thing is be very careful in your development environments that you try to use anonymized data not true customer data we've seen this a few times where Amazon S3 buckets, which are great for large amounts of storage, but somebody spins up a database or drops some data out in one of those things to do some testing and they forget about it. Next thing you know, because it's a kind of a test thing, it's not very secure. And lo and behold, the attackers find these things all the time and go and, and run off with all the data in there. So be careful how you make copies of the data, where you make copies of the data, Understand how long you need the data for, and then either anonymize it where possible. If you don't need it tied to an individual, um, let's say marketing trends and things like that. I don't need to know every person's every browsing habit. If I need, if I'm looking at a, a larger picture, what marketing worked and what didn't. So get rid of that stuff before you start dumping it into tools and things like that. Try to keep it as limited as possible while still being useful spoken like a true a true uh, scientist it's the marketing data <laughs> we don't need that data <laughs> <laughs> well you know it, it that value is that data is incredibly valuable my my point is don't keep what you don't need though no I don't. if you need it and it becomes valuable yeah absolutely keep it but we got to stop just just holding on to stuff for the sake of holding on to stuff, right? I, you can't really take the whole, hold this piece of data and it, if it brings you joy, keep it. Otherwise, throw it away angle, right? We can't do that with data. But we can be very selective in what we do with it and very um, uh, careful with how we manage that. Awesome. So I, I have to ask you, do you think that there's any role for regulation in this process or are you a fan of every company just needs to take this kind of thing seriously um or do you think that there there may be some standard best practices that should be imposed on on people that's a great question um typically i'm not a fan of regulation for the sake of regulation um there's a lot of regulations out there that that frankly, don't make a whole lot of sense that just make things tougher. 
But when you look at things like the credit card uh, group, you know, for PCI, DSS, there's a lot of, of reasonable value in that that's kind of forced people to take things a little more seriously. So there is a place for that. Um, I would say that it's difficult to regulate something like this on the side of the organizations, the, the businesses, when it impacts the data of someone else and maybe they don't care about it or they don't want to. In other words, to regulate something that says you shall have multi-factor authentication for all your users, that's maybe not a great way to to regulate something along these ways. That's a great um, meme, to, though. We need that as yeah, a meme. <laughs> right. I need Gandalf standing in front of the Balrog <laughs> right, from right. the Lord of the Rings movies yelling, you shall have two-factor authentication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or you Some, shall not pass. Yeah, 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 yeah um, exactly. You shall not pass. Somebody, <laughs> somebody out there is listening. I know it has to be into graphic design. Please, I need that meme. Right. Bradley at merchantfraudjournal.com. I'm waiting for it. Well, on the flip on the flip side of that, I would say that regulating that any employees of that organization that deal with data like that have multi-factor authentication enabled on their accounts, I'm all for that kind of regulation. Hopefully you can see the difference there. Yeah, for sure. No. Um so this has been uh really incredible, Eric. I, I really appreciate your uh a wealth of knowledge on this. And and like I said, it's really been too long that we haven't spoken about this because it's such a key security topic. I, I want to give you 30 to 60 seconds here at the end to uh, plead with the community to take action on this. What, what, would, what would you say in those 30 to 60 seconds for the merchants listening out there that maybe don't have two-factor authentication or aren't really taking it seriously, um, either on the implementation end or on the data uh, sharing or, or saving or storage end, uh, what would you say to them? What's your message? Well, first of all, I love a monologue, so thank you for that opportunity. Um, <laughs> what I would say is, unfortunately, we have to accept the fact that we as merchants, as organizations that, that are in, you know, retailers, anything that handles other people's uh, information, we are going to have to, at some point, accept the responsibility for their poor hygiene. We just need to pull that Band-Aid off and say, okay, we realize they're not necessarily going to change their behavior. What can we do to help secure them? The thing we got to understand is there is value in that to us, even if we're fixing a problem that ultimately belongs to the end users. And that is when something goes wrong, for example, um, North Face, their name is the one in the newspaper talking about this going on. It's not the individuals that, that didn't do well with their passwords. So we want to avoid the being in those kinds of newspaper articles and, and stories like that. So there is value to that, but we have to understand that we are going to be asking people to do additional steps to again, accomplish the same goal. And we have to be patient with that. Um, it's hard sometimes just to pull the trigger and say, starting tomorrow, everybody has to have this, maybe do some gradual rollouts. Uh, listen to the customers and get their feedback on where their pain points and friction are and see if we can make it a little easier. 
The other thing is look to like financial institutions that have done this and just worked it into their process where it just becomes accepted and known that this is going to happen and take some clues from that. That would be my suggestions. Great advice, Eric. So thank you so much for being on the program. This has been wonderful. I really, really appreciate it. I know our audience is really, really going to appreciate it. I hope you'll come back and we can talk some more about the biometrics. Um, another really hot topic that we could do, as you said, an entire episode on. Thank you so much. This has really been wonderful. Why don't you let us know one more time where everyone can find you on the web and then uh, we'll sign off. Absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter at Eric Crone, my first name and last name together, no space. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm always happy to have conversations out on LinkedIn. You can look me up there, Eric Crone. Uh, very few people spell their first name the way I do, E-R-I-C-H, and the last name K-R-O-N. So easy to find me out there. Uh, always happy to chat about this stuff. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Eric. Take care.